0: Welcome to another episode of Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast. I have to admit, I'm a little super excited today as I get to talk to my friend Rebecca. I met Rebecca while she was leading the UX Task Force report for HFES, and I was a contributing author on it. And over the past years, we have developed this amazing friendship, which is so much rooted in supporting each other and showing up for each other in our professional as well as personal lives. And over the course of our new blossoming friendship, our conversations often would revolve around women in tech, or in general, just women in our professional lives in HF and UX. And we most certainly heavily have bonded Over our love for data and stats. We just can't help it, but we are data geeks. And so with that, we have discussed things like biases, advantages and disadvantages, and how UX and HF is viewed and implemented and also maintained in different types of industries and organizations, and lots and lots more. So with that being said, I would love to welcome Rebecca, Hello, my friend, and thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I'm so excited to have you on.
1: Hi, Heidi. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. And if you don't mind, I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us all about your vast experience and expertise in the field of human factors and behavioral sciences.
1: Happy to. So i like to say my career was one of serendipity. I started during the dot-com bubble working for what was then called SBC. But of course, we all know that bubble burst. And the only folks hiring people with graduate degrees in human factors was the Department of Defense. I worked in and around the Department of Defense for about 12 years and then had the opportunity to move over to Ford, where I worked on their autonomous vehicle for four years. I then switched out there to go to medical human factors, but my timing was atrocious. And that two (laughs) weeks after I started working in medical human factors, it shut down the world. In that time, I got the opportunity to interview at Google and took a job that moved me from the U.S. to Europe with Google. And then another opportunity landed on its door where I was recruited by Microsoft to lead a program changing the culture of Microsoft from being a feature factory to more customer-driven, which is where I've been for the last two and a half years or so. Unfortunately, that role was recently eliminated, and so I'm now looking for my next opportunity.
0: Wow. You certainly have a vast experience. That is very impressive. So Rebecca, if you don't mind, if you could just tell our listeners or give them a little insight how you and I have come to talk about women in tech and medtech, especially in HF and UX and how that has been kind of an ongoing conversation that you and I keep having, but also how that certainly has gained of importance within the industry over the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, so we started talking because I had noticed that there's kind of two histories of UX, depending on who you talk to. There are folks, a large chunk of UX comes from design background, um, and then there are folks like me who started out in human factors and applied behavioral science. But we are often overshadowed by the design and people don't seem to be aware as much of the human factors and behavioral science components and that history that preceded the term user experience. I once talked at a conference about people with disabilities and autonomous vehicles, and I introduced myself as a human factors researcher and a human computer interaction professor at a big name school that has a human factors department came up to me and said, I didn't know there were even human factors people anymore. I tell my students that I don't know what happened to them, that they're now all UX or human computer interaction, which just blew my mind because I was like, no, we're still here and active. (laughs) Anyway, from that, I started on a task force you joined that task force, and we found that we had so many things in common related to human factors and UX, but also beyond that, our conversation started talking about just the challenges sometimes women our age face in heavily tech uh, sectors.
0: Yes, and challenges they are. That is such a very elegant way to say it. But I think it's safe to say that our conversations are not as elegant sometimes (laughs) because the thing that is probably the most significant in that for me has always been the fact that it seems so redundant to say it as women have disadvantages in the workplace because we already know that. It is a common known fact. Not just equal pay, but promotions, performance reviews, how heavily subjective everything is within performance reviews, and how these are often gauging your popularity factor opposed to your actual performance and skill or your progress in learning a new skill. And so that is an obvious one to say, but It's so interesting how in our field in behavioral sciences, where usually the majority of population of the student body is female, yet when we exit school and we go into industry, for some reason, all of our senior executives and managers seem to be men again. So how is it that The majority of the student body graduating is female, yet somehow the lead positions are always filled by men, predominantly white men. Let's be very clear about that. So something that we often talk about in these conversations is how UX is viewed, how human factors is viewed, and how there's a lot of misconceptions between the two. And that those misconceptions, and correct me if I'm wrong, or if you don't agree, but I often feel that the misconception and the miseducation and misinformation about what human factors actually is compared to UX and what UX specifically represents and what human factors represents. And then how that is then often rolled up and kind of meshed and makes it harder and more difficult for women to advance because not only are they fighting the regular inequalities in the, especially in the tech world and in the workplace in general, but with the confusion around what human factors in UX is and what those roles are supposed to be doing and what each kind of title within an organization, let's say, what their role is supposed to be, how that then is often used as kind of like a weapon, almost like it contributes to the disadvantage because let's face it, if people don't know what you're supposed to be doing and what your role is about, then it often is easy to say, well, you can't be promoted and you can't have that title and you can't do this. And the lead positions are for people who do that. And if, You want to be promoted, you have to manage people. And with us being scientists and researchers, we like doing the technical work. So often, a lot of us don't want to have the people management roles. So it's this convoluted mess. And then let's squeeze in, oh, and hi, I'm a woman. So that then also is added to it. And I just wanted to get your kind of feel like how
1: you see that and how that has affected your career. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the human factors UX split in that. So I started my career, well, I've always wanted to be a scientist. There is not a day in my life that I didn't want to be a scientist. It was just a matter of growing up, what kind of scientist I was going to be. And I didn't hear about psychology as a science until college. And in fact, I think it was my first day of college, but I could be wrong about that. I had my Psych 101 class and the professor was a research psychologist. And the more I took about that class, I was like, that is definitely what I want to study. And then my junior year or third year, two professors on The same day mentioned human factors as the study of people with technology and then applying that to make technology more user-friendly. And I was hooked. And that is what I went to grad school for. And I started my career, what is now the largest phone company in the United States, working on all sorts of disruptive technologies at the time. And what's funny is that department still exists with many of the same people that I worked with back then, but it's called UX Now. Whereas everybody, when we started, was called a human factors engineer, whether we got our degree in psychology or engineering or computer science, we were all human factors engineers at that. And so when people talk about human factors is different than UX, I'm like, Explain this to me, Lucy. (laughs) Because even a book that I got last year for my son, who's a teeny tiny little kid, it's a book for kids. It talks about safety. It talks about human error. It talks about enjoyment, which are all the things that I went into Human Factors to do. And so the field has changed dramatically. And I see UX now and... I almost have to ask questions as to figure out whether they came at UX from design or stumbled into UX, or if they had a behavioral science background and how much they're aware of human factors and human computer interaction and such. And it's one of the challenges is when I'm looking for a new job and new opportunities is finding those folks who appreciate the behavioral science aspect of UX. In addition to that, in the last I think ten years or so, UX exploded like there was on several lists as the career to have. And with that, tons and tons of boot camps out there. There's tons of people on the internet doing pseudo profundity is what I is a term I found someplace talking about it where you find something talking about UX and you don't know if it's just somebody's opinion that they decided to call themselves an expert in UX and started writing this and said, this is my opinion versus is this something grounded in science or practice such that it's sufficiently repeated that it's not just this person's opinion about their experience and it worked for them in their specific industry or at that specific company. Or is this something that can be carried one over? My favorite example of that is the three-click rule. I have heard UX folks in UX talking about the three-click rule and saying that you have to find a piece of information within three clicks. Otherwise, it's a bad design. And human factors in the 90s, maybe in the aughts, I could be wrong. I have to look it up. uh, There was a scientific paper published and said that that three-click rule was bogus in that What's important is whether or not people feel confident that they are going down the right path. If they're confident, if I click this, it's getting me closer to the information I need versus finding it in three clicks. And so sometimes you can have seven clicks and it's actually less workload than having it found in three clicks. And people will rate the design as more user friendly
0: and that is such a great example that you just gave for the whole science because it is what is the actual outcome what is the result of that so if somebody feels confident going down that road and they know that they're going to get to the information that they're searching for then it is a good design and just generalizing it by saying three clicks And if more, it's a bad design. That's where I like to bring in your lovely term, pseudo profundity. I just love that term so much, but it's the cherry pick behavior. We tend to go into our data biased already, especially behavioral sciences. If you're not specifically trained in that, it's not because you do it on purpose. And I almost think, Most people don't even know they're coming with biases. And by that, I mean, you're almost directing your data because you're biasing it. So if you then use a specific result and generalize it, as you explained in that example, and just say, oh, three clicks and it's a bad design, then you're not being true to the data. Cause I'm sure the data didn't say that I'm sure the data said for this specific case in this specific information seeking path, three clicks was the optimal Kind of threshold to keep the user engaged. But that doesn't generalize to everything. And that is one of the things that I most often see in human factors, where when the lines get blurred between UX and design and human factors and the people who come from a design background or even marketing background with business degrees, and then the human factor scientist who is trained in behavioral sciences and has learned how to set up a study design so that the variables and the data collected actually matches what variables you have and the outcome that you're looking for to whether or not prove a hypothesis. That actually is then conflated. And so what I often see then is people assuming they can do our job Because it is, well, I did that, I did this, I collected the data, and the data said this. Okay, but did you set up your experiment design to be repeatable, showing repeatable patterns? Can it actually prove your hypotheses? And did you actually formulate your hypotheses before you started collecting the data and not just collect data and then afterwards oh let me just make this statement right because that's what i often see when people are not formally trained in it and i think that is a perfect example that you just brought up that kind of not just sums up but also identifies one of the biggest issues we have within it you mentioned the ux roles and the human factors back then it was this and now we're calling it user experience and now it's this title and there's a human computer interaction professor. These are all titles that get thrown around very lax, I think sometimes. And I think the understanding of how they actually have come together and how they're correlated to each other is often lost. Because if we were very conservative, we would have to say, look, human factors is in the field of applied experimental psychology. It's an applied behavioral science. Now, within that science, you have many different aspects. One of the aspects is human-computer interaction. One of the aspects is the user experience. I think that's a very important point to make. I'm very glad you brought up that example. But with that being said, do you feel that the conflating of titles and kind of mis- understanding and miseducation and misinformation that is with regard to what we actually do. Do you feel that that is one of the things that contributes significantly to the problem in itself as
1: well? I don't know. I go back and forth on a lot of its stuff because UX is predominantly in design teams and as leaders of it are design and stuff like this. And I don't have a design education and I'm trying to learn more. From what I've read There is some aspects of human factors, but there could be more behavioral science going into design education and that the research techniques they're taught seem to be more inductive techniques, which you don't start with a hypothesis. You kind of say, I want to learn about this area, and then you see patterns And then say, ah, this seems to be a pattern in this data that I have collected. And when you have no place to start, that is the place you start. And I mean, there is the human factors skill of task analysis is essentially based on inductive research. And then you can come together with a design concept and then test to see if that is what it is because we always have assumptions. And that, then I want to go back to that point that you made earlier about our, our biases and how that affects data. Humans have biases. Biases are not a bad thing. Biases are necessary for us to live. Um, right. We need... Survival. <laughs> we Survival. We learn patterns and they pass on chunks of information and allow us to not spend our time going, is this shadow, why is there a shadow here? Is that the same color or not the same color? Of the wall, the gestalts, I mean everything. There are good biases and there are bad biases and how you go through them. But everything is a bias or an assumption that we're making and you want to check your risky assumptions more rigorously. So it's fine to start with inductive research. There's a lot to be done in design and designers are very talented at applying a lot of perceptual principles to create great interfaces. Um, And not every problem requires somebody with a human factors degree. Keith Instone has a great metaphor of cooks that he came up with it because his son in college was working at a diner. His son had never cooked a meal in his life, but got this job I might be wrong about that, but his son got this job cooking breakfast at a diner. They taught him the 12 egg dishes or whatever that they had, and he can cook those great now. Now, that doesn't make him a michelin star chef, and he can't create fusion cuisine or something like that, but he would say he isn't. And I think getting to your final question was like, that's the problem, is that we don't know, and we have no way of representing the skills, that when do you need more complex behavioral knowledge or more complex research skills versus when do you need a cook versus a chef? There isn't any similar categorization within UX or human factors. There is no knowledge of, oh, you start as a junior and your entry level, you should have these skills and then get promoted up to senior or lead or principal. In fact, those titles never run the same at places. I've applied to jobs and like, well, you know, this is a senior role, so it's quite junior and other roles that said lead. And they're like, that's a quite junior role. I'm like, okay, I don't know. But like, it would be nice if we had a set of titles and we said, these are the skills that somebody has. If they're in this industry and at this level, they have this set of skills. Technology is constantly changing. So that makes it hard. In addition to that, social science, behavioral science has a real problem, not even in the applied sector, but in academia that there are just too much branding going on, that we're not building science on top of things, especially when we're in the applied space We're we're solving the problem for this specific technology. And we're not leveraging that science and creating a theory of humans and and to the degree that biology, chemistry have created like core theories and core paradigms within their research. I don't know what the solution is, but it's a real challenge that when you're very skilled at human factors or UX research, it looks like something that anybody could do. Just yeah. like when a system is designed with really great experience, you don't even recognize it because it was like, I just did the thing I wanted to do. Whereas when it sucks, you're like, who designed this
0: thing? <laughs> but that is showing, that is demonstrating when somebody's doing their job really good. When you've yeah. designed and engineered a system that It's effortless, or let's use the word that everybody loves to throw around these days, intuitive. When something is intuitive, something is effortless. People often are misled in their thinking, like you said, thinking that it's something everybody can do. But the key to that is that whoever did the project, whoever contributed or led the development, actually was very very skilled. And that is skilled in behavioral sciences, skilled in human factors engineering, skilled in the specific skill that we are trained to have, that is take data and apply it to the design of something, to the engineering of something in order to create that image of effortlessness, that experience of effortlessness. That is the skill And that is taught in the human factors programs, the behavioral science programs. And so with that being said, you're right. Bias is needed. Bias can be positive. Bias, it contributes to our survival as a species. You have to have biases towards something in order to be sure that your flight or fight or freeze mode comes into play when it's supposed to, listening to our gut. Those are all instincts.
1: I mean, we were talking about intuitive devices. Something (laughs) is intuitive because it's using the patterns we have learned over time. Therefore, we are biased to acting in a certain way. Intuitive is just another word for bias. And- If something is intuitive, it was designed with the biases. And
0: that means that somebody who knows those biases and studied that field knows how to apply them optimally in order to make it intuitive and to make it effortless. So those are all the things where it's so interesting how when the job is done right, it looks like anybody can do it. But when it's done wrong, it looks like we have no clue what we're doing. That yeah. is one of the things that it often arcs me probably the most. It's, well, if you would let me and not cherry pick out of my results, instead, apply them comprehensively, then you wouldn't have that. But if you keep cherry picking things out of it thinking, oh, let me pick that, let me pick this, but then let's not do that. Now it's kind of like pulling out the Jenga pieces and eventually the tower will fall because you can't just take out the most critical pieces because the essential stuff is holding up the criticality. So That's another thing that I always thought was interesting when I went into medtech as I started to see how often the human factors engineer or scientist or researcher on the development on the R&D team has no decision-making authority. And so they are instructed to collect data, instructed to do XYZ activity or produce XYZ document, like you mentioned, task analyses or whatnot. And then we present our results, and then people cherry pick out of them instead of engaging with and applying them comprehensively in order for the system to make sense. But when that is done, what you're creating instead is yet another, let's call it user experience challenge for the user when it comes to usability, effectiveness, and the overall experience with the system or product or whatnot. And so that then creates the challenge in the next hurdle, in the next milestone. So now we presented our findings and you cherry picked certain parts out of it and you didn't integrate the essential parts to those in your product or in your design. And let's go into the next, let's say, usability evaluation. And now the evaluation goes poor again. The first thing that's done is, well, what's wrong with your results? I thought you said, no. I said, if you implement and apply point A, B, C, then D will be effective. But you only took B and C. You left A out. And I think that is often lost. It's a perfect analogy to how it's applied in other fields, too. And when we talk about women and disadvantages, I love how they say you have the same rights in your job. You get the same titles and you have the same conditions. Yeah, on the surface, it looks like it. But underneath the surface, let's be real, I don't get the same pay. I don't get the same advantages. I do not get considered for the promotion based on my potential. I have to prove my skill before you give me a chance. And men don't. How many studies have shown us that men often get hired and promoted based on potential and women don't? Women have to show and prove their skill. And that is the big caveat. And I think you haven't worked in the big tech. You could probably tell us, a tale and a half about how that is actually lived out in the industry.
1: Well, I mean, I'll protect the Innocent and guilty. But I mean, there's been some great research that's come out, I think, in the last year or two, and I'm blanking on the company that has done it. It's an amazing company. And they have found that in performance reviews, which I'm not a fan of performance reviews systems. But anyway, there has been scientific research by this company that has looked at it and they have found that women and people of color, so women of color have it even worse, that they will have feedback in their performance reviews that is non-constructive. So things like they're not likable, they're aggressive, they're assertive.
0: Well, let's face it. They don't say assertive. They say rude, mean, harsh, blunt. (laughs) If they said assertive, it would almost be good,
1: but they don't. Well, in men's performance review, the context around the word assertive would be good. In the women's, if the word assertive is used, it's too assertive. It isn't just assertive. It's They're too assertive. And you're having to walk this fine line. I remember one point early in my career, I got asked to be lead a, a cool project for somebody pretty high up. And a male coworker of mine, and I loved working with him. We collaborated really well. I thought he was smart. He thought I was smart and talented. But he said that I only got to lead this project because the executive liked having attractive women around him. I don't know if that's true or not, but it really hurt my esteem and my feelings at the time. And I remember calling a couple of mentors that I had at the time and asking them about it. And their response was basically like, there's no way to prove that is true or not. And there's no way for you to ever find out if that's true or not, unless things go really badly. <laughs> and probably this person is smart enough not to do that anyway, if it is true. But they, like, what does difference does it make? It, because if you had been gone to the same university and met at an alumni association meeting, or you were involved in the same sport and had met at the golf club, the squash club, same charity, volunteering at the same event. And that was the connection. It's not different than the executive wanting you to be around because they're attractive. And that was the only thing that allowed me to be okay with it, but it's still okay. Did I get my foot in the door because of this? It's one of those things where
0: I think. And I'd like to take a moment so we can focus a little bit on this because I think this is such an important conversation to have. Let me be very clear. I understand that when women talk about this, it's often perceived as if we're complaining and we're whining and we should just work harder or stop focusing on that. Don't let it get to you. Don't take it so personal. Well, My question is, what do you mean not take it so personal? You just attacked me as a person. You insulted me. You insulted my intelligence. You insulted my experience. You insulted my expertise by reducing me to a cliche that's already been shown is not True. And so a lot of times I have a lot of apprehension talking about this publicly because here it goes. This is intrinsic in us. This is how we're raised. We're branded with this, but we're also raised like this. It is so internalized that we feel guilty and ashamed and embarrassed for even bringing up the conversation, the topic, because we are viewed and titled and branded as whining women. I mean, and now I have to be careful because I'm going to just spout information and examples out and just pour out because my brain is going overload here. (laughs) Neurodivergence alert. But this happened... As our listeners probably know, I've been talking about perimenopause and the biases in the healthcare system, how women are treated, and how menopause is just waved off as a couple of hot flashes, a little bit of irritability, a little joint body pain, and that's it. But it's so much more. And so, and I don't want to dive into that specifically, but what I'm trying to say is I've been doing a lot of research on menopause and perimenopause and treatment for it and how our society and our healthcare system is set up to not allow us to get the optimal treatment and even be taken serious. So with that being said, I have been told that it's all in my head. That's one. And then I watched this podcast, Dr. Haver is her name. She's a expert in menopause and just does amazing things for men, women. And she was on this very popular, famous podcast. I think it's the CEO podcast or something like that. And she not only is throwing statistics out there that'll make your head spin, but one of the things that she mentioned was also not only are we not taken serious, it was common in medical school training to refer to women and in practice, not just in training, they were given this abbreviation of WW, whining woman. They wouldn't write it in the charts because that would be too obvious, but that's how the doctors would refer to women coming in complaining about their menopausal symptoms because, you know, we're hysterical and we're overdramatic and reactional and we're emotional. And so... You can't possibly take our complaints, our pains, our suffering serious, because, quote unquote, everybody has to go through it. Every woman has to go through. Where in fact, one third of the entire global population right now, female, is going through perimenopause, menopausal symptoms, and eighty-five percent of that is experiencing very significant symptoms. So it can range from very minor things to all the way to mental health breakdowns because of your hormone imbalances and your estrogen loss. And only 10.5% out of that receive treatment. That is how cruel women are treated in healthcare. And that is just one example. And with that being said, that is the example for just how internalized, we have this view on women. But you were mentioning the executive who only wanted pretty women around. And so I think those are examples. Some people would say they're extreme examples, but they're not. Those are the common examples. Those are the experiences we have. This stuff that you can't, how did you say it? You can't prove it, but it's obvious It's Everybody saw it, everybody cringed, everybody had big eyes and reacted, yet if you were to report that, what are you reporting? But if you take that and you put somebody in those positions or situations constantly and it's a continuous behavior and it's a regular occurrence, then how can we say that equality for women has been accomplished? We can't. And so for me, those are the examples that continuously come up and it's that, that it's this inequality in how we treat women, how we view women, how we give them opportunities and what opportunities we give them. And I think that is one of the things that irks me the most when it comes to stuff like this, where, yeah, you're right. You can't really say, did that executive really say that? And is that really why you got your foot in the door? That was a perfect example. That's what we fight on a day-to-day basis.
1: But even though this guy probably would have said that I was more accomplished than him at that moment in time, and I did do well on the project, it was a tremendous opportunity. And he was... I'm assuming he was jealous, and that is why he said it. And it doesn't matter if it's true or not, because it's in his head. It's what he was thinking, that right. even for a split second. Now, I did do well on it, just like if the executive had picked me because we had volunteered at the same cause, and that was why he wanted me on the uh, project. I took that opportunity and did well. But there's always this thought in my head, whereas. You know, nobody would sit there and go negatively. Oh, it's only because they volunteered together. Like that wouldn't have been a you know a knock. It would have just been like, oh, what a lucky break for you. <laughs> and I want to go back to the thing you were talking about. note taking the most memorable time it happened to me was shortly after I'd had this conversation with another one of my good friends, and it was a team meeting and the complex project. A lot of the project was related to algorithm development and it was a team meeting. And the team lead, who was male, I was the only female, asked me to take notes. And I said, sorry, I know you're the bulk of this meeting agenda is about the algorithm development. I'm not going to be able to take good notes on that topic. And he the lead was like, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know." And somebody else then volunteered to take notes, one of the men in the room. And afterwards, three of the men were like, he never real is gonna realize what he did wrong, but you handled that perfectly. <laughs> I was like, wow, thank you. Um but yeah.
0: but that's one of the so interestingly, as you were telling that story, one of the things that popped in my head was, what a great response, right? But now having to come to terms with being so late diagnosed with the neurodivergence, I just learned that it can take me up to three to five days to process social interactions. And so that quick-witted response is something that I can display a lot, probably because of practice. But when I am stumped, I don't have it. And most of the time, I just freeze. And I look at the person and I am in such disbelief and such shock that they just uttered those words that I have no comeback. And a lot of times the comeback is the most honest one that comes to mind. And being ADHD or being autistic, you tend to do that. You tend to be just honest. It's it's not trying to be insulting. It's just being honest. And my response to something like that, I do remember one where I said something about whether his hands didn't work, or whether he couldn't, or whether <laughs> his fingers didn't work. I mean, like your fingers don't work, or something. That was my honest response. I was like, "Why?" But then, because I'm a woman, I don't get to say those things because they can possibly be sarcastic. They couldn't possibly be a joke. They couldn't possibly be honesty just shining through. No. I get titled as being bitchy and rude and mean. And why did you have to say that? That was so inappropriate. What was inappropriate about me asking whether his hands worked or whether he couldn't take any notes when his request was the inappropriate thing. And now that we've learned what gaslighting is, gaslighting is basically when the person who's disrespecting you is using your reaction as the issue, but it is the reaction to the disrespect and they completely forget to focus on the disrespect that caused the reaction in the first place. So that's the thing that now, as it's becoming more of a term and it's more commonly known as gaslighting now, but that's ultimately what you fight. And so, yeah, you're right. Do you know for certain? No, but these are the experiences we have, and it does kind of sit deep because it's like with anything in life, any experience, any kind of raising. I mean, when we look at our childhoods, it isn't the one event most of the time, it's the repeated exposure to that behavior that then forms coping mechanisms, forms trauma, forms these reactions that we have. So, as a woman, you already know. And this isn't written anywhere. We know this. You already know not to dress a certain way, not to speak a certain way, not to approach somebody a certain way, not to enter the room in a certain way, not to do this, not to do that. We know these things. But if we were to say it, people would be, well, that's just ridiculous. Well, okay, that's ridiculous. Well, let me take you back to when my manager told me, and I quote, I think you should go home and change your outfit is a little too inappropriate. I was 25, wearing a turtleneck shirt that was fitted, and I was wearing slacks with a belt. What was inappropriate about that? I'm sorry. My body is not acceptable to you for whatever reason. And here we go. Why did I just say I'm sorry? Why am I sorry for that? Why isn't it about, okay, excuse me, what? You need me to go home and change because you can't handle looking at me in this outfit? What? I'm confused here. Had I gone to HR and said something, I would have been told, well, you shouldn't dress inappropriate, right? Because that's the response you get when you're female. So, that's one of the things where I'm just very concerned, how is that ever going to be solved and how are we ever going to move away from that? And and that's one of the things where we're talking about women in tech, you amp it up then and you take it into these environments that are heavily male-dominated or used to be and have these specific cultures within that then even make it more difficult for women. And I wanna see what your experience has been in the different industries? Have you seen different, different types of misogyny?
1: <laughs> I have to think about that. But while you were talking, I was thinking of some stories from my childhood because it is so ingrained in men. Just like you said that women learn how to dress or how to act in certain situations to be appropriate. And we have our guard up and we learn to say sorry and things like this. I was quite athletic as a child. I did gymnastics from the time I was three or four years old until I graduated high school. And so I had upper body strength and a little bit of speed, not a lot. But I remember doing the presidential physical fitness test in something like third, no, probably fourth or fifth grade. And girls did the arm hang, the chin hang, and the boys did the pull-ups. And the gym teacher had said that if a girl can do the chin hang for longer than a minute, or if a boy can do seven pull-ups or more, I will give them a soda. And I got up there and I did the chin hang for over a minute. And he's just like, get down, you're off the charts. Just get down, stop. Because I wasn't even shaking or anything. And none of the boys did six. So no boy got the soda and I did. And they were like... Well, the arm hang is easier or whatever. So then he said, well, I don't remember the kid's name. Like, Joe, you did the most chin-ups. You go do the arm hang and Rebecca, come up here and and do chin-ups. And I popped off seven chin-ups, no problem, because I was in gymnastics. I was used to holding my body weight up with my hands for forever. And and they said, well, she didn't do them properly. She didn't go all the way down because I was doing them fast. And so I went up and did like two or three more. And the guy couldn't even hang up for 30 seconds, which was a long time. But it wasn't the minute that I had done. Fast forward to in high school, I ran cross country and I wasn't fast enough to be varsity most of the time. So the JV junior varsity race, girls and boys ran together and I was the fastest girl in the JV race and I passed one or two of the slower boys who were probably a year or two younger than me. And I remember at one point, one of the teammates of one of the boys that I had passed yelled, you're being beaten by a girl, go faster. And, but just the idea that a girl couldn't possibly run faster, couldn't be stronger, even in elementary school, in high school, when like men have this idea, some men, not all men, but men are socialized at a young age, that they're supposed to be more. Than but girls. just the fact that you just said
0: men and then you corrected yourself and said some men shows how intrinsic this is. Because a man would not. A man would say women. And yes, not all men are like that, but let's also be very clear, not all women are the same either. And first of all, that reminds me of you run like a girl. What does that mean? You run like a girl. You're being beaten by a girl. What does that mean? That assumes the societal position that girls don't run correctly or proper and they're weak and they're this and they're that and they're, well, what does that result to? They're seen inferior. When in fact, all the science over the last decades have shown women are the better leaders. Countries that are led by women have a better economic position, have a better socioeconomic position, have better programs. They are run more effectively. Why? Because we run things according to effectiveness, according to logic, principle, but we also show empathy. And so we have been shown to be effective leaders, but we're still not even close to being 50-50 in executive positions. And nobody's saying women are better. All I'm really saying is women are effective leaders. Some women. Well, again... I am not going to do that. I'm going to say what the study said. Women, it is not some women. It is overall shown in the results. Women are more effective leaders. That does not mean men are inferior and women are superior. That just means in this particular thing, we have a advantage. Just like in a particular thing, men have an advantage. And so I think... This is very demonstrative of what I always have to be reminded of, Heidi, two things can be true at the same time. This isn't a zero-sum game. This isn't knocking men off. This isn't saying men aren't great. Men are great. I mean, come on, what would we be if we didn't have all the diversity in gender? First of all, we'd be a boring society. (laughs) Second of all, we wouldn't evolve. We wouldn't progress. And that's what we're supposed to do. And so I I do just want to kind of bring it back to not only does that make your career more difficult, but it definitely paints a picture on how a woman's career in certain fields unfolds and progresses and how a man's career progresses and unfolds and how biases often feed into that. I think it's fair to say if I were a man, my career would look different. That doesn't mean it would be better or worse or whatever. It just, it would be different. Certain obstacles wouldn't have been there. And that's one of the things where I'm just like, when are we going to shift there? When are we going to see a transition there? Because it is not any different than it was only a few years. There's no progress currently made there. As a matter of fact, in this country, we're rolling back rights for women. So that shows me that this idea, this surface thinking that well, we've reached equality. Women can work and women can do this and women can do that. No, we haven't. Because the interesting thing there is when a woman works and let's say she has children, isn't it often very interesting how the woman is expected to run the household yet she works full-time? So where's the 50-50 there? And I do not need anybody to come for me and say, there are men. Yes, there are men. But we're also talking about mental workload. And this is one of the perfect little examples I saw was when a man is trying to demonstrate that they're being helpful, right? They go, well, let me do the grocery shopping. Just give me a list. Well, if I have to do the mental workload and I have to give you the list, then what are you really helping me if I have to tell you what to do, then what are you really helping me with? The mental workload is just as big as the physical workload. And I think that's often forgotten that women get stuck with a mental workload of managing both. And the quality there has not been reached. So for me, this is a perfect example of how that then unfolds in your job, in your career, where. You can sit at the same table, you can have the same titles, but for some reason, the man gets more opportunities out of that. And I don't know when that will actually change. And I do feel that often, and I'm going to go back to what we earlier spoke about, that with our industry having so many titles, having such confusion around what it is that a human factors engineer needs to do or what it is that a UX designer or UX researcher, what their roles are and what their job includes. As you said, we don't have set definitions written anywhere. And this is one of the things you and I spoke about when we did the report together, where we had considered coming up with certain title certifications did we say it was certifications
1: or program we said skill-based titles with skill-based definitions and then potentially having certifications aligned to those skill-based titles it would be (laughs) one step
0: but going back into that and and taking a deeper look at that do you feel that could be something that would contribute to
1: getting rid of the confusion? There's so many things I want to say about what you said before, but I'm going to answer that question. (laughs) So this is another area where design thinks that UX was created in the 90s. And those with human factors backgrounds know that it goes back to Lillian Gilbreth and Frank Gilbreth, but more so Lillian in the 1910s uh, uh, and such. And what Lillian Gilbreth did and Frank Gilbreth did their life was made into a book by their children, which became a hit movie in the 40s or 50s, I can't recall. And around the same time as that movie, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn did a rom-com. I think it was the first rom-com called Desk Set. And he played what would be now called a human factors engineer. Uh, in the movie, it was called an efficiency engineer. But oh my God. basically God. I love so, the title. efficiency engineer was this scientific management career in the teens to the 30s then everything crashed in the 30s as we all know world war ii technology was advancing issues were happening with technology they hired a bunch of psychologists and human factors. that's when they started to be calling human factors after world war ii it led on for a little bit longer after that but the crashed then the aviation age came about and planes and space and they had the same issues so human factors went up again and then it crashed as a discipline and then the computers came out in the 80s and usability and human computer interaction was a hot career and then it crashed (laughs) and then the dot-com bubble and usability was exploding as a career and then the dot-com bubble burst and it crashed as a career field, and I'm not sure because I was working in defense for this period of time, but from what I've gathered from posts on LinkedIn and other social media, 2015, 2016 or so, this current trend of UX really took off and has been growing, and it crashed this past year. So I don't know what the solution But I'm just, there will be another wave of user-centered design and probably with it will come new job titles and more pseudo-profundity and uh, as it gets popular. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know what's going to happen next. Now, I do want to go back. I said some men and some women and stuff like this. And there's two reasons why I said that. First my father was a feminist. He would told me repeatedly in my childhood what his grandmother told him which was that she was born property and now she owns property and things are never going back. I never for one minute in my life thought I couldn't do anything I wanted to do just because I was a girl. And it's because of my dad. He wanted me to be an athlete. He wanted me to be a scientist. In his mind I was a fully fledged human being and the world was my oyster and whatever I wanted to do my gender wouldn't hold me back beautiful um I also yes I also say that in my very first job my co-workers were mostly men but they were mostly feminists and my two or three mentors that I had at that job who are mentors to this day their wives do amazing things and I never thought that I was any different you know, yes, I, we're different, but I didn't think that my career was going to be different just because I was a girl based on them. And they're people I've turned to for advice all the time. And then I have lucky enough to have an amazing husband who is a stay at home dad. And so I don't have the mental workload. He says, I make the bacon and he fries it. Um, <laughs> and he does most of the housework and the childcare. I mean, I, I'm an active parent too, but we co parent. And so. That is one reason is I have been blessed in my life with men who are feminists. And I'm using feminist in the term. My definition of feminism is that you believe women are human. Yeah. Then the other point I want to make on that whole thread is you stated at the beginning we're both data geeks and I'm a behavioral scientist. And one of the classic things about behavioral science and data and statistics is the normal distribution. And that when a study says women are better at something and men are better at something, what they're saying is that the mean of the two populations is different. And that if the population is big enough, if you plucked a woman at random and you plucked a man at random, you will likely find this size difference. But... The spread and the overlap of those two spreads will show you whether or not. So going back to women are more effective managers. I have had women who were not effective managers. I have had men who were very effective managers. Those population means tell you nothing about the individuals. There is still individual variability. And you made that point, but I wanted to put the science data geek
0: spin on it. That's funny you say that because I just had a conversation with a friend of mine where I had to explain How, if you take a population, a sample size, and within the sample size, the spread is let's say 10% is green, 40% is red, 50% is blue. Now, when you then have an event happen, and this let's call it event X, and this event X keeps happening statistically due to the spread of your sample population, the blue is going to show up more right that does not mean blue commits event x more often it just means that within your sample population
1: you You have more blue you have more blue
0: (laughs) and this was so hard to explain to somebody who is not a data geek right and i could not Help myself, but feel frustrated. And I just kept saying, Yes, but you have more blue that affects your outcome. And she kept saying,
1: But it's always the same. And I'm like, Yeah, but you have more blue. (laughs) There is a great series of books called Basically, Each Title is Something Science for Babies, written by a physicist. And there is one, I think there's two. There's one, Statistical Physics for Babies. And then there's, I think, Bayesian something for babies or whatever, I would give that book to this person if they had that. Because it's like my very young child, when we've been reading these books to him since he was an infant, and he now understands things like relativity and quantum and (laughs) statistics because of these. (laughs) But it was just
0: so, I mean, granted, my neurodivergence was, whoa, on full blast because my rigidity and... The person not seeing what I see was in that moment too powerful because all I kept saying was, yes, but you have more blue. If you have more blue, you will have more blue in your results. And when it comes to normal distribution, just like you explained, it doesn't mean that for the individual case, you might have more blue. It just means for the distribution. And yeah. and so I was trying to explain that, but then she kept reiterating, but that's my personal experience. yes but you are living within the population that has 50% blue. So even your personal experience is influenced by more blue. And so that was like this contentious point. She finally came around and she's She's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. She's just so open for you laying out a case and kind of showing, explaining your side and your view. She's so open to soaking it all up. So I really, I hooked in and I just was so adamant about making sure that she understood that because how you just said it so nicely, it's when you look at the individual case, it might not be, but when you look at a distribution from a population overall. That's what it is. And that's really what statistics is. Nobody is saying that women are superior. Nobody is saying that men are bad at this. When you look at the overall, then that is what it shows.
1: Like I said, I've been fortunate in my life that I have had many feminists in my work life and in my personal life. I've been blessed with that. They seem to come around when I need them the most, too. And and surprisingly, when I worked in DOD, I mean, there were pockets, but the people I worked closest with tend to be feminists or supportive of women in tech and in engineering and such. One of the kindest things anyone ever did for me was a very high ranking retired military officer, myself and another woman Who had a PhD in psychology? We were in similar fields. And we had impressed him enough that he said to both of us, You're both really smart, capable, and confident women. And you are going to encounter people who have a problem with that. It will be a problem, a challenge, but it isn't your problem. Mm -hmm. Don't ever doubt that you're smart and confident and capable. And that helps me to get through some hard times. Another Senior military person who I had to work with in a situation. He was my client. He asked if he could talk to me about an interesting project, and then he asked me to pose in various stages of undress um, as reward for training program that he was working on. Um, Excuse me, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh my. God. Yeah. So. I mean, there are the extremes, and those were both similar aged individuals, similar rank individuals in the military. There are no universals. I love the feminists and the men who are supportive of women and who go out of their way to be helpful. I, again, I've been blessed to have several of them in my career. And sometimes I think that the people who engage in it aren't even aware, going back to biases, they have an idea of how women are supposed to behave. And if you will behave differently than that, then it rubs them the wrong way. And they think it's about you and not about their biases that they have.
0: Yeah. Do you feel that this one-sided thinking that me asking for equality is taking away from you, and because of that, you feel threatened in your own and your ego, it does feel like it's this negative cycle. I, I don't know how we will ever get past that, because it's this one side of thinking that me asking for equality is taken away from your plate, and it's not. It doesn't
1: take away from you. It's not pie. It's not unlimited. So me taking a bigger piece doesn't mean that you get a smaller piece. What we're saying is, I just want (laughs) the same amount from the pot that you got. That's all. I want you and I to work together to create more pie. So I'm hoping that this isn't a problem for the next generation of women. But then again, I think back and... I had Geraldine Ferraro, and Sally Ride, and Charlie's Angels, and Bionic Women on TV. And there were tons of programs when I was a kid. It wasn't called STEM back then, but it, that's what it was. Women into STEM, girls doing STEM. And then at some point, the programs were effective, and all of this was effective. And now there seems to be a mini backlash. Things have stalled, and they're not progressing. It's very weird to think about how when I grew
0: up, I had this internalized thinking, it's not the 50s, it's not the 60s. So I'm not going to have those issues. And then I enter the workforce and I'm fighting every single battle that my mom fought, the same battles. And granted, I'm a Gen Xer and millennials especially Gen Z the one after that they, they do have different experiences but the common threat still is going they're just mm-hmm. unfolding differently now and it does affect me a lot when i see a 27 year old posting on linkedin telling the very age old typical misogynistic story that she experienced in the workplace and i'm thinking to myself she's 27 when is this going to stop when are we going to reach equality and One of the things that always get me the most is, and I'm quite comfortable in who I am and how I'm handling life these days with a lot of insight and a lot of support from friends like you that (laughs) we shouldn't fall into this trap of generalizing and being negative towards it. We should be more optimistic and hopeful so that we can push forward the progress. And I'm here for that. And I'm always going to support my women friends. And I'm always going to support my friends in general. And you mentioned with your experiences in life and that you had a very supportive father and a feminist and all these great examples. And yes, you are so lucky. And I'm almost envious because I did not have that. And I think the way we both speak about the topic, it makes it very obvious. And to our listeners, that is a perfect demonstration of biases. (laughs) So, yeah, I am heavily biased because I did not grow up like that. I was not told that I could be anything. I was told that I can aspire to anything. But it was also made very clear to me when I wanted to become a pilot, I was kind of directed towards being a flight attendant because, well you're a girl. You can't be a pilot. You should be a flight attendant. And I remember that being one of the things where I first, because let's face it, until I was what, 12, 13, I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> so so there was no science. I did not, like you always wanted to be a scientist. That only came later on. But I definitely was not live. The example. Now, my mom was a very strong and independent woman, and her leading that example led me to strive for more. I will definitely say that I always had this internal ambition and desire to strive for more, but I definitely did not see the world as an equal world. I definitely knew that as a woman, I was going to have a couple of fences to climb more than my male counterpart. And that was always one thing that I had the most discomfort with, how that keeps happening to women. Society likes this idea of the strong, independent, powerful, successful woman, because it resembles the progress and the evolving that we have done, how far we have come in equality for women. Yet, when individuals are faced with it, they are apprehensive and they take a step back and they distance themselves and they don't like it because like we just discussed the pie, they think it takes away from that. And so I most certainly kind of as as a last deep dive here, I wanted to get your take on with UX and human factors, with all the regulations and guidances really heavily leaning towards being more well-regulated in that field. Do you see that UX is gaining more momentum and human factors is indeed like this professor that you encountered said, human factors is
1: vanishing? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I hold out hope. (laughs) I don't know if it's going to be called human factors anymore, but I do hold out hope for user-centered design based in behavioral science. And, you know, there are pundits galore out on social media and on the internet, and many of them say that the rapid rise of UX in the last few years led to a large number of people who didn't have the right skills, who didn't have behavioral science, who didn't know what UX design was. And because there were a lot of rules out there and companies wanted it and such, but they didn't know what it was. And... That the decline might be because so many of these people and so companies are like, well, this wasn't anything that adds value to us. And maybe that's the case of all of the sine wave cycle that has been human factors or behavioral science or scientific management over the last hundred years is it gets popular, people join it. There is no gate checking in UX. There really isn't. Anybody can call themselves that. It's not like a doctor or a hairstylist that has to have a license of some kind and prove some, some amount of skills. You don't right. have to have that. In engineering, to work as an engineer, for the most part, you have to have a college degree in engineering. If not, you have to have shown that you can do... But people don't understand the skills of user-centered design and user research and human factors. And so maybe the decline is useful, and then it's not going to go away completely. And so I hold out hope that user-centered design based in behavioral science will come back. It might be called something else. And I'll have to change all the titles on my resume again. Um. (laughs) Honestly, I'm so Um, tired of changing it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know this is hope and this is bait and this is me saying this is a pattern that exists and we know that we make better products when it's based in behavioral science people point to genius design out there and Steve Jobs is talked about as being a genius design well yes and no he created the idea of the iPod because he didn't want to carry his CDs around he saw a need, wasn't met and he figured out a way to work with it. The classic example I love is the Palm Pilot which is 90s tech so I'm dating myself but I've already said how old I I haven't said how old I am but we're both Gen X. Everybody wanted a PDA or a palm or a handspring. And people often talk about the palm as this genius design. Well, it wasn't true. The people who created the palm had, worked on PDAs two or three times before at big companies and had learned from those failures that there needed to be at a certain price point it needed to fit in a pocket and it needed to have reliable data entry and those were their requirements for developing the palm and then when they sold palm to somebody they did it again for the handspring what's funny though is that they lost those three core requirements for the device when the two times they tried to turn it into a smartphone because they did 10 years before the iPhone came out or in six years, six, eight years before the BlackBerry, they released a smartphone, which was basically a cell phone attached to a palm pile or, or a handspring. But the cost was absorbent and it didn't fit in the pocket anymore. It was large and chunky and stuff. And so two of the three core requirements that made the PDA, the palm, the success went out the window. Conversely, we talk about Apple, which Steve Jobs wasn't there. They had also tried to do a PDA about the same time as the Palm. It was called the Newton, but it was the size of a laptop is today. So not something that could fit in your pocket. And they did their research. They were coming up with handwriting recognition. And the research questions they did all came up with, oh, this is awesome. But they didn't test the reliability. And it turned out that it wasn't very reliable because there's quite variability in handwriting palm had fixed this problem by creating graffiti which was similar to what most of us think of in terms of cursive and stuff like this but it was very prescriptive. And so you could learn it quickly because it was similar to what standard cursive was. So long as you remembered these symbols for writing, it would recognize it 100% of the time, not 100%, close to 100%. So it would be like writing on a notebook, which was what you needed to get people away from doing to make a PDA successful, is make it as easy as writing in your notebook. But the Newton was huge, so not pocket size. It was expensive. And The handwriting recognition didn't work as reliably as writing in a notebook. So why would I carry around something the same size as a big notebook that cost me the same as, a? don't remember how much it cost, but it was expensive. So going back to what are the unmet, unarticulated needs of folks, what are the user's goals, their context, and how are they going to define satisfaction? And making sure you understand these things and that you're doing the research in a way where you're not saying to somebody, isn't this cool, but you're actually examining the questions that you're trying to ask through rigorous, unbiased research. I think there's always going to be a place for that in research. And I think there's always going to be some jobs for people who can do that. And there'll be people who recognize the importance of it. I think we're in for a while of not being a common job, but for people who have those skills, I think there will always be jobs for them.
0: Yes. You mentioned two things that I love. And which we don't have any time to talk about today, but it's just so beautifully how you incorporated the unmet needs, which that is our strength, the identification of unmet needs. That is why we do research. We observe and we collect data and we identify where needs are not met and we whether you want to call it brainstorm, design, engineer, whatever, we find solutions that will solve that problem. Another thing I just absolutely love that you mentioned is failure. Failure as a path to innovation and resilient outcomes is literally the title of a paper I just did with friends, Christy and Melissa and I'm Rita and Andrew And we had a panel at HFES, and the wonderful thing about that is that in behavioral science, we embrace that because we have this trial and error thing, right? We look at something and we use the failure and the knowledge of what and why we failed to progress, to adjust, and redefine, redesign, and improve. And so that is one of the strengths that we for sure bring to the table as behavioral scientists, as human factors, researchers and engineers and whatever the title currently is going. But that is definitely one of the things that I love probably most about what I do is that I get to look at things from a different perspective and use the outcome, the data of, let's say usability evaluation, and I get to analyze it and say, ooh, we could do it this way. I think that'll solve this problem. Let's do a prototype and let's test it again where the iterative testing comes into play. And let's see if that'll solve the problem. And that's the beautiful act of what we do. We use failure as the power to identify how to optimize. And I think that's another thing that as scientists we do. And if you're not formally trained in this field, that is often lost. This affinity towards failure being something positive, embracing it because it teaches us so much. That is definitely something that we learn in our training, in our education within the behavioral sciences. And I think that is one of the beautiful things that we do. That's just always something that I love to put in the forefront, how our methods and approaches and thinking in the behavioral sciences are also based in very human standard everyday thinking that, yeah, we just identify unmet needs and we find solutions for it. But we also don't look at failure as something negative. We look at it positive and an opportunity to improve whatever it is that we are creating. And I think that's one of the things that I love so much. And I think to close out our just so versatile conversation about this topic Mm -hmm. is I think The struggles for women and the challenges for women in tech and HF and UX overall are there and they shouldn't be denied. And we shouldn't be gaslit into thinking that we no longer have the right to speak about this topic because, quote unquote, so many things have progressed and so many things are better. No, we aren't in the 1950s anymore and we aren't in the 60s. We could bring up any past decade. No, we aren't in those anymore. But we definitely, as you so profoundly said, have stalled there has definitely been a pause put on the progress of women in the workforce. I think that we still have a lot of work to do. And I do think that conversations like these are important. And I know that a lot of people are going to get offended by some of the examples that I brought up, that you brought up. And some people are going to really resonate with it. Some women are going to be like, that happened to me too. And you think that was bad? Let me tell you about my story. Or I hope that never happens to me. There's also women as such out there. And I love that they exist. I love that there are women out there who have not encountered these situations. And I hope that women who encounter those situations become less and less and less. And I do want to emphasize one more thing. When women have these conversations, what I would love to see, and maybe throw a challenge out there to our listeners, I would love for men to share this topic more. And it's because I want them to understand how inequality for women actually directly affects them. And I think that is often lost. I think it's often lost that Just because we're talking about inequality for women does not mean it does not affect men because overall it does. The whole system suffers. It's just like systemic racism affects all of us. It doesn't matter whether you think you're affected by it or not. You are. And this is one of those things. You are affected by the inequality of women. And you don't have to have a sister. You don't have to have a daughter. You don't have to have a wife in order to be affected by this. You yourself are already affected as a man. And so one of the big things that I hope people take away from this conversation is that this wasn't two whining women and this wasn't women complaining. This was women talking about their experiences and their challenges in their careers and the overall experience as a woman in a professional world. So I hope with that, the conversation stirs the pot positively or negatively. Sure. It could go both ways and it probably will go both ways, but I'm okay with that. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing and thank you for all the insightful stories and experiences you shared. I could go on and on and on and talk to you for hours about this. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity if you could share with us where people can find you to talk more about the topic.
1: On LinkedIn, Rebecca-Greer-UX. I am also on Medium. You can find articles I've written on psychometrics and on behavioral science and the importance of it to UX.
0: That's where I live online. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. It was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. I hope that our listeners enjoy our conversation. And I hope that Lots and lots of conversations following this will come and open up the doors for more women to share their experience and maybe change the game for us all. All right, folks. Well, that's it for today. Again, what a fantastic and insightful conversation. I cannot thank Rebecca enough. It was such a rewarding discussion today. And as always, we're going to share the links to all of our socials and our websites in the description of the episode. So don't worry if you didn't catch Rebecca's information. And as always, please share your thoughts with us and comment wherever you're listening to today's discussion. And please show us some love and support the show and leave us a five-star review and tell all your friends about us. And maybe even considering the Human Factors Cast Network on Patreon. We're always happy for support there. Thank you again, Rebecca, for getting into this topic and sharing so openly and having this wonderful rounded and diverse conversation with me today is much appreciated. As for me, I've been your host, Heidi Marzad, and you can find me across all social media at HFUX research, as well as our show's social media at safe effective podcast. Thanks again for tuning in Rebecca and I thank you and would love to hear more from you. And I can't wait to see the comments. And of course, as always, until next time, stay safe and effective.